Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome two executives and co-founders from Atai Life Sciences, Florian Brand, their CEO, and Srinivas Rao, their Chief Scientific Officer. Thanks to both of you for joining us today to discuss an important topic. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Great. So to kick us off and to set context for the rest of the conversation, we'd love if you could provide us some context on the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sounds good. Maybe I'll jump in first here. This is Srinivas Rao. And Rahul, again, thank you so much for this opportunity. Briefly, by way of background, I started out in actually physics a long time ago, then transitioned to computer engineering as an undergraduate. Really liked the biomedical aspects of it. Actually did a master's in that as well, but decided there was a disconnect between how engineers spoke and how physicians spoke and other clinicians. So then I ended up going into an MD-PhD program. Also really liked understanding how different computational structures work. So this was really how I transitioned to neuroscience. And my PhD was actually neuropharmacology. So wrapped that up, did an internship. I did all my training at Yale, undergrad, master's, MD, PhD, actually my internship as well. Then realized how little I really cared for clinical medicine. <laughs> so that one, the blocking and tackling on a day-to-day basis, I decided wasn't necessarily for me. Indeed, even the academic aspects of medicine were also not incredibly appealing. Because again, fundamentally, I view myself as an engineer at heart. I need a real-world problem to go and solve. And was very fortunate to actually meet, you know, I matched in a different therapeutic area and then ended up meeting someone who was another Yale MD, PhD. CEO of a company called Cypress and ended up transitioning to biotech and obviously haven't looked back since. I've been, you know, in this space for 22 years. I'm a startup guy, small company guy. So I was initially CSO of that company, but then have been chief medical officer, CEO of different companies along the way, started a couple of companies. One actually focused on autism. You know, the last couple of positions actually have been chief medical officer, one of a larger company that had six products in the market at that time, had a phase three asset. Then a smaller company also focused on autism, but a novel, novel kind of approach to it using brain gut interactions as a methodology for treatment. And that actually led me to Atai. I mean, going that actually got introduced to the team at Atai when it was quite nascent, obviously, through that first person, that guy named Jake Granzo, the very first person who was my boss at Cyprus. And he was actually the co-founder of Perception, one of the companies in Atai's portfolio. At this point, I'm going to hand it off to Florian. Well, thanks, Srini. Yeah, Florian Brand, co-founder and CEO of Atai, and also very happy to be on this podcast. Thanks for giving us the opportunity and have a business and a CLO entrepreneurial background. And what got me into biotech and the mental health specifically, or biotech developing novel therapeutics if in your psychiatry was actually very personal experiences, seeing friends and family members developing severe mental health disorders and not finding the care or help or healing they needed when being diagnosed with mental health disorders, depression to be more specific. So that became very evident with Lars, one of our co-founders that I also started another company with 
before a tie who developed a severe depression that turned out to be a treatment-resistant depression. And I, as he's also a very close friend, got very intimate insights in how distressing non-responder mental health patient journey can be, basically adding to the already distressing experience of suffering from depression, and in this case, also anxiety, and how yeah, cycling through this trial and error approach in the standard of care and experiencing the many side effects that many of the approved compounds have, and not really, in his case, experiencing any relief of the symptoms, let alone, I guess, long-term remission, added onto his suffering. And ultimately, he had to resign from the co-founder position and co-CEO position from our previous company and stopped working for a while. And then was by one pointed to some of the academic studies that were going on and exploring psychedelics, in particular psilocybin, to treat mental health disorders. And he basically did a little bit more reading after Christian, one of our other co-founders, sent him some of the academic articles out of Baltimore, so John Hopkins and Imperial College in London, that really showed promising results and then was courageous enough to give it a try in the Netherlands, where in a therapeutic setting, he basically had a very profound therapeutic experience that really profoundly changed his life to the better. He says it was a curative experience for him because it enabled him to process some of the traumatic experience that he believed to be at the root cause of his suffering. And that ultimately that then led to the founding of Atai as a company that was initially focused on psychedelics. And with Compass Pathways, our very much very first involvement in the space, focused on psilocybin. That's also the companies that he then joined as a co-founder on an operational level. And then from there, started to explore other psychedelic compounds, such as ibogaine, for example, but also putatively non-dissociative, non-psychedelic compounds, such as R-ketamine that we have in development also for treatment-resistant depression, and some other more traditional pharmacology, I would say, that is equally as exciting and was left behind when Big Pharma was leaving neuroscience several years ago. And for us, I think what we realized is that I guess some of the reasons for Big Pharma leaving was a low likelihood of success in neuropsychiatry overall in terms of bringing a drug to approval. And one of the mitigating factor, the strategies that we applied in terms of de-risking and increasing that likelihood of success was focusing on compounds with prior evidence in humans. And psychedelics are a very good example here, of course, because they have been heavily researched in the 50s and 60s. And then due to the political backlash, the Nixon administration's agenda of scheduling and vilifying those compounds as part of the societal conflict around the Vietnam War, the research really came to a hold. And then only in the 2000s and 2010 years was revived by academics such as Roland Griffith out of John Hopkins. And we basically picked up that very intriguing data prior evidence in humans, and then applied that as a principle to hopefully get many of those compounds that we have now in development with the psychedelics and the non-psychedelics to approval and are also big believers in the potential of digital therapeutics. So I have also a digital therapeutics unit that our perspective can be quite instrumental to achieve durable and sustained clinically meaningful behavioral change in mental health patients when combined with some of the compounds that we have in development. 
Great. Thanks, Florian and Trini. Before we jump into uh, a tie and the details of what you guys are working on now, Trini, I was wondering if you could provide us an overview of the neuropsychiatry landscape. And also, you know, I think there's been, for good reason, quite a bit of increase in awareness around mental health. And from both of your perspectives, why do you think that is the case now? And what's come together in recent years to enable and allow for that? Yeah, it's a good question. So the CNS space has been obviously a very challenging one for a very long time. It continues to be a challenging one in many ways, right? So some of the drugs that we've had until very recently, the SSRIs, the antipsychotics, the atypical antipsychotics, I mean, these are functionally cleaned up versions of compounds that have been around since the 50s. Some of the very first antidepressant was a anti-malarial drug. And it was just an, a fortuitous finding that folks that were taking this drug actually tended to feel better. And similarly, there's a similar story around some of the first antipsychotics. And since then, there's been this sort of reductionist approach trying to find that pharmacology that's really driving it, driving the efficacy, and then focusing on that. And that's what led to SSRIs and some of the second and third generation atypical antipsychotics. But that's it, right? There really hasn't been marked improvements. You know, there's other things like lithium, et cetera, but really there's no mechanistic underpinning to this. It wasn't for a lack of trying. So in the 1990s and early 2000s, there were a lot of attempts at coming up with new antidepressant drugs in particular, the NK1 antagonists, et cetera. These are things that worked in animal models, but ultimately did not work in humans. And this does speak to what Florian mentioned earlier, the lack of predictive validity in many situations from animal models to humans. Again, you can't ask an animal how they're feeling. So you use proxy measures, you use these other behaviors. And there is a bit of a tautology with some of those. I mean, the way these models were put together is that, hey, SSRIs are atypical, you know, some of the uh, tricyclics or other compounds work. Thus, it's a model of depression. And thus, we can test new drugs in it. And of course, that's a bit of a problem. That's been where things have stood for a long time. There's obviously been a lot of research and a great deal more understanding into the mechanisms behind antidepressant efficacy, particularly this entire literature around neuroplasticity writ large, right? And that means somewhat different things to different people, but, you know, at a mechanistic level or at a very ultrastructural in vitro level, that's neurogenesis, but it's circuit plasticity, it's behavioral plasticity. So this appreciation for behavioral neuroplasticity is something that's come to the fore again over the past 10, 20 years. And understanding how that links back to old drugs and that's given insights into new kinds of compounds, right? So SSRIs do have a neuroplasticity bit, you know, angle to them. It's just that it's a low burn, slow burn type phenomenon. And then we psychedelics as a good example where this phenomenon is occurring very quickly and it's occurring in the context of network disruption, allowing for potential very rapid onset efficacy. So there's been a shift in understanding. There's been more appreciation for some of these Older compounds, again, ketamine is a good example. This was some work that was done at Yale and IMH back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And there was a hypothesis around this compound class because of its glutamatergic activity. And that's what prompted some of these early studies. And lo and behold, these were some of the very first trials that showed rapid onset of efficacy, antidepressant efficacy outside of electroconvulsive therapy. So these were really pretty remarkable early studies. So again, it's a progress, I'd say, compared to like cancer maybe 20, 30 years ago, right? So ultimately, cancer used to be, it's breast cancer, it's prostate cancer, 
it's where the thing sort of originated. And of course, now that's not what we do. We actually do look at markers of what this cancer really is, what the underlying defect is, and then treat accordingly. Obviously, we're not there yet with neuroscience. We know that. I mean, depression is depressions, right? I mean, there's so many different things. If you look at the DSM-5 criteria, you can see that you only need, I think it's four or five of the criteria. I think there's a total of nine. And you can see that these are totally different phenotypes for whether or not you're sleeping too much or sleeping too little, whether you have more energy or less energy, like an anxious energy. I mean, there's different criteria that give a very different phenotype. We call it all depression. So, you know, even at a very basic level that sort of doesn't make all that much sense. So in time, we hope to get there. We're working on it in part with our digital, certainly, but, you know, looking at other angles as well from the metabolomic perspective. Now, to address your other question about why this has become more salient, of course, COVID is an important player here. The isolation that many people felt, not being able to go to school, and particularly for the kids, but also for adults not going into work or interacting with coworkers, not traveling, not interacting with families, was profound. I mean, that impact was profound. And I think something that's going to reverberate for years, if not decades to come, particularly with the younger individuals. I have kids that just turned to teenagers. The youngest one became a teenager during the course of COVID. The currently 13, 16, 19, it was really tough. I mean, it was a really tough time for the kids. And they lost an important year or two of socialization, which was just critical behavioral plastic window during adolescence. It's even more profound for little kids. So this is just something that's going to be reverberating for a while. And Trini, given the one to two years that were lost for perhaps the parents that are listening right now, any guidance you have in terms of things to look out for given that loss of socialization for the one to two year period? Obviously, it's going to be hard to make that up, but any guidance that you have for folks? I mean, I think it's a tough one. In the end, you know your kids. The reason it's tough is there's a developmental trajectory And then there's where the kid is. I mean, obviously changes from pre and to now are the critical bit, whether it's academic performance or it's how they're interacting with their peers. Just make sure that the kid does, in fact, get any kind of therapy that they need. I mean, obviously schools are trying very hard here. Different schools have different resources in this regard. I've heard this from parents of other classmates of my kids, as well as their teachers, how different the interactions are in the school. I mean, I think it's just making sure that the kids do get out, that they don't stay in their room, they don't stay attached to their devices. It's really, really, really hard to do. But anything you can do to get them out and playing with other kids and interacting with other kids, I think is going to be critical. Great. Thanks, Trini. Florian, I know that part of the Atai team is based in Germany, as you are. I'm curious if you guys have observed any differences in terms of approaches to mental health and mental health care between Europe and the U.S.? Our ultimate focus is currently really U.S.-centric, I would say. So I'm actually probably more familiar with the U.S. The system of getting, I guess, therapies through approval and also, I guess, what's the current standard of care looks like at the commercial stage. I think there's a tendency in, I don't know if it's Europe, but in Germany to, in first lines, to rely more on psychotherapy versus, I guess, prescribing drugs. I feel there's a a certain reluctance, especially in the younger population, to go to pharmacological options. While that is maybe a little bit different, and I'm not judging either way, it's more an observation in the US. I think what we generally can say from, from studies and observational studies is that the combination of therapy and drugs works very well. That's also kind of one of the reasons why we believe so much in our 
digital therapeutics, the psychological support delivered in conjunction with some of the drugs that we are developing. So these are some thoughts. And Sweetie, I don't know if you want to share some of yours on the US systems or differences that you observed from your trips to Berlin. Yeah, it's a little tough to, we had to really dive deep on that. I think the challenge in the US has been, depends on where you go, right? So a lot of the initial assessments on mood, et cetera, are done by primary care whether that's a internist or it's an OBGYN, there's a lot that's put on those folks. As you know, the primary care docs in particular, they don't have a lot of time. And in many situations, referrals can be made, but this gets to a structural issue within the United States about how a mental illness is treated, particularly by insurance, right? So there's not parity in that regard. So it's easy and it's commonly done to just stick someone on an SSRI, right? They're cheap. No one's going to argue with you. It's very easy to do. I don't think it does the patient a ton of good in the absence of some sort of additional support, right? This is where the psychosocial support comes in. It's great to have a medicine that can get you out of the immediate funk, can improve your symptoms acutely, but then to really benefit, you do need to change some of the ways that you're thinking, right? This is, and this exactly, you know, ties to what Florian was indicating around our digital therapeutics. We recognize there's a problem with scalability in terms of therapists, fully recognize that in the context in particular of our particular psychedelic compounds, I think this is even more acute. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done both before and after taking a psychedelic medicine. And that's why we emphasize this so much. I mean, one of the anecdotes that I always give is I grew up in a really small town in Southeast Kentucky, population 1500. At the time, certainly there were no therapists. There was no psychiatrists, certainly. Even now, it's a very depressed area, literally, from an economic perspective, but from a mood perspective, high unemployment rates, high suicidality, et cetera you're not going to be able to do adequate support for these individuals in the absence of digital. And that's the fundamental premise that we've always had from the very outset of this company. Great. And Florian, switching over now to Atai, if you could describe the model at Atai around drug development and how you're approaching tackling such a, a massive unmet need. Yeah, happy to. So I alluded to earlier how we think about, and Srini also alluded to it, about our approach to increasing the likelihood of success to actually getting the clinical stage compounds or general compounds to approval. So we have eight right now in the clinic, eight programs focused on very diverse pharmacology and also focused on many different indications within mental health DSM-5. And one of the key elements is prior evidence in humans to mitigate for the translational risks that we've historically seen in neuropsychiatry. So going from animal as a predictive model to humans. And in addition to that, we intentionally rely on basically a multitude of programs to have multiple shots and goals. So to basically avoid binary risk here. So that's why we designed this portfolio approach on purpose to mitigate, yeah, for any failures along the way. We are factoring in that not every program will be a success, but ultimately we want to make a difference for patients. And hence, we have factored that the heterogeneity of this patient population into account and that ultimately we want to 
get as many as possible through the clinical development stages. And we're also inspired by some of the more modern approaches to drug development, decentralized drug development that have emerged over the last years. Royven is a very prominent example, but also Bridge Bio and PureTech also to a degree. So all three listed on the NASDAQ as well. And we were inspired because being entrepreneurs, we're very much intrigued to think through how can we actually implement the right incentives and create a culture, an entrepreneurial culture that incentivizes also yeah, really being focused and diligent on driving forward a molecule while centralizing for kind of the company leads, the, com the scientific founders also of respective subsidiary or company that we founded, while centralizing some of the activities that are more overhead activities such as finance, accounting, human resources, and ultimately also fundraising to really allow them to focus on, on executing on their trials, so executing on the science and the development. So that was another reason why we designed a tie in a way that we have this hub, a tie, which centralizes those activities that I mentioned earlier and decentralizes the drug development itself, putting the clinical and science teams into the position to really focus on that and don't have to worry about fundraising, recruitment and other disciplines that are not directly related to bringing the compound through the development stages. Yeah, I certainly agree with and the decentralized approach very much resonates with myself. I'm curious, as you think about biotech and given your entrepreneurial journey into biotech, what are some things that you've seen that have surprised you, perhaps net positive, but also inefficiencies that you've seen given your prior background in other areas? And maybe starting with the last one, which I think in hindsight maybe turned out as a positive, I guess, ingredient is that we, of course, started out with quite a controversial group of compounds, tryptamines, psychedelics, that have been vilified for a very, very long time. And initially, when raising the first capital rounds, met a lot of resistance from the more traditional biotech investors. So there was a lot of skepticism, a lot of pushback. And here, I think it paid out that Christian, who I mean, started out in biotech, but has a broad investment focus, who's one of our co-founders and provided the initial seed funding for the company to get us started. So that was I think helpful to get us started to demonstrate then to generate the data to later on also convince the, the more traditional biotech funds. But here, I think one of the key factors that helped us to succeed was that we actually were outsiders because we were not necessarily part of a certain group thing. I think that's something that you observe across industries where you have people from the outside maybe being more risk taking than the insiders. So key opinion leaders and also yes, Successful biotech entrepreneurs have a reputation to lose and are maybe not, might have played a part for us being actually the first ones to start a company that is commercially from a for profit perspective focused on this compound group and bringing those compounds through the development stages. Anything that's surprised you in a positive way around biotech? I'm very grateful to work. And I think that is very much true for, for biotech to work with people that are extremely mission driven and that are very much patient centric. And I think that is a yeah, great character traits to work in an industry that is very mission driven and really wants to get innovation out to patient. And so I'm very grateful to be in an industry and also working in a company with so many smart people that are, that are not purely monetary driven, but really want to change the world to the better to improve patients' lives. And I think that is extremely rewarding on a daily basis to be in a position to work in an ecosystem to push the envelope in terms of 
innovation for patients. So that has been a very rewarding experience. Yeah, I certainly agree. And I think, you know, sometimes for outsiders in, in biotech, oftentimes you hear a lot of the negative of what's going on in pharma in terms of pricing, et cetera. And, right. you know, once for us, once we're actually in it, it tends to generally be all about the patients and the passion that companies like you guys bring is really commendable. I'm curious in terms of the German biotech ecosystem, what does that look like compared to perhaps hubs in the US, whether it be, you know, Kendall Square or, or San Francisco? You know, it's probably telling that I got most exposure to the US biotech VC world and very little to the German speaking one because we quickly work kind of to talk to the US based investors because I think generally there is a more higher risk appetite in the US compared to Germany and a more vivid ecosystem and also a higher degree of innovation actually getting out of universities spun out into startups and then funded so that there's much more activity in the US. I wouldn't say it's much more quality, but I think in Germany and Europe, we're slow to realize that the innovation that is happening at universities, that it's not bad to commercialize. (laughs) For some reason, this notion of it's kind of seen as, I don't know, not great as a professor to necessarily spin out startups. So that's Mm. this entrepreneurial mindset is much more established at the US universities. And I think we have a lot to learn from the US when it comes to creating an ecosystem that funds promising research, uh, not only at academia, but once we have compelling data, also helps to spin out startups from universities and help kind of to build this biotech ecosystem. So while we are Berlin-based, our investor base was very early on, very international, so UK, and is predominantly today US. We are listed at the NASDAQ, so we also decided to go to US-based exchange, not the German one or another European one, because the access to capital is in biotech much greater in the US. Yeah. And on the topic of being a publicly traded biotech, as well as, you know, effectively every other industry right now is going through quite a bit of a correction, both in terms of public markets as well as private markets. I'm curious how the current environment is impacting or informing your approach currently over the next you know 12 to 24 months as it's seeming more and more likely that we're heading towards a recession but you know the fundamentals of obviously biotech remain very strong so i'm wondering how you guys are navigating that so we were in the fortunate position to go into this biotech downturn with a very healthy cash balance and that i guess sets us also apart from some of the other biotechs so and in addition to that where we reprioritized our pipeline and initiated a cost optimization program and also secured a venture debt facility of up to 175 million from Hercules. And this allows us to deliver on the eight clinical stage programs that we have right now in development that we all assume will deliver meaningful efficacy data. So that was our, I guess, way of setting us up in a way that is hopefully very resilient to any recession or other external factors and allows us to really focus what we can influence, which is essentially developing our drug programs through the phases and generating efficacy data. And so you brought up the word focus. So you guys are incubating a number of different companies. I want to ask you a personal question about how you work. Working on multiple companies, I'm sure it is very easy to get pulled in many different directions. And I'm curious, what's the model that you've developed for yourself to stay focused and know which of those companies needs what from you? 
on a daily basis was early on in my career, very much inspired by the getting things done methodology by David Allen. I don't know if you, you came across that one. And yes. I used that one in, I guess, combination with the Kanban methodologies. And I guess every Monday or Friday, prioritizing tasks for, for the week which is basically listed on the left. And then basically every day spending time whether I'm still focusing on the right things by applying the getting things done methodology. And that links them back to more long-term planning frameworks that we use. And then I also personally use, which are quarterly or trimester-based objective and key results planning cycles, where we deliberately take time to brainstorm what projects can we do to achieve or get closer to our vision to heal mental health disorders so that everyone everywhere can live a more fulfilled life. And we're breaking this down into more concrete actions items that translate to annual goals and then the quarterly and quarterly OKR, like OKRs, objectives and key results that are then very much measurable in terms of metrics and then do I guess, the weekly planning or sometimes bi-weekly planning that through this getting things done methodology that linked back to those mm-hmm. quarterly goals. And that's how we are operating in a company. And I try to mimic that also for my personal life. Yeah, that's it's great methodology. Thanks for sharing that. Given all the ups and downs that are involved in drug development and obviously being CEO, how have you been navigating all of those ups and downs and any advice you have for folks that are listening that are perhaps aspiring entrepreneurs to be able to deal with the challenges of being in that seat? So I think what is very important, what I learned also is very important for me is to follow a certain mental health and physical health hygiene. That means to following a routine of meditation practice, mindfulness for myself that also very much helped me with my own mental health journey when I was a teenager. So mindfulness techniques really helped me through that. And I still practice those today and block out time to do that on a very regular basis. Sometimes it doesn't work every single day, but I really try to stick to that hygiene. And then in addition to get a run in, so I don't do any fancy sports, I just put on my my running shoes and go for a run that's basically possible everywhere. I'm traveling a lot. So that then happens either in a gym, in a hotel, or whenever I can go outside for a run, I go out for a run at least four or five times a week. And that puts me into a position that is... For me, it works for me to be resilient enough to navigate through the stressors that come with the job that uh, many of us do as a founder or or CEO. And having put together a team that I can rely on, of course, also helps. So this is not a one-man or woman show. It's really a great team effort. And being able to trust the team to get things done allows me also to lean back and not always be in, in alert and firefighting mode. Yeah. And I'm curious, your meditation and mindfulness practice, did that precede the founding of Atai? Is that something that you have yeah. been doing for some time? Interesting. I suffered from severe anxiety disorder in my teenage years, yeah. 16 to 17, 18. You know, that was a very tough period for me. And one of the key tools that helped me out of it in a durable, sustainable way was those mindfulness meditation that I since then practice on a very regular basis and also helped me greatly to build the previous company. So I usually meditate in the morning for 15 minutes 
It's not a lot. You can quite flexibly build it in. You have to make it a habit. Otherwise, <laughs> it doesn't stick. But I somehow managed to, again, not every day, but most of the days in the week, get those 15 minutes in to I guess, take the time for myself. Sit with me in, in quiet. Yeah, great. And so on that topic, and Florian, before we wrap up, if I could ask you to reflect a bit more for a minute, you know, given all of your experiences and all that you've seen over the last couple of years, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? That's a very good question. <laughs> what I benefited from, and I also had therapy when I was a teenager, I think what helps to have coaching, therapy, whatever you want to call it. So those tools or those is using services like this or like therapy or coaching, in my view, helps you tremendously to understand yourself in a way and what automatisms you created based on certain childhood, <laughs> childhood experiences when growing up. So just taking a step back and recognizing certain behavioral patterns that are not always healthy, but in automatism, I think kind of knowing that earlier and just being more, more self-aware, like investing in more self-awareness. And I guess that ties into mindfulness is something that is extremely worthwhile investing and that I, in the past years of building companies, often sacrificed for more short term. I need to get this thing done. I really need to meet this immediate milestone. Hence, I'm sacrificing time to reflect or time to work with a therapist to reflect. And I think that is maybe something I would tell my younger self. So basically spend time on self-reflection, be it alone or together with a coach, therapist to work on yourself and yeah. be more self-aware. Great. Well, on that note, Florian and Trini, thanks so much for joining us today, for sharing the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing, and also for being a bit vulnerable during this conversation. Really appreciate that. Well, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.